Hello and welcome to Learning Curve, the Alpha Plus Group podcast. I'm your host Emma and today I'm delighted to speak to Chris Thorne, Head of English at Weatherby Prep School. Welcome Chris. Hello Emma, how are you? Well thank you, thank you for joining us. Chris, I wonder if you could start by telling us a bit about your background and what led you to become an English teacher. So I qualified as a primary school teacher in 2006, where I taught year one for a number of years. And as part of that role, I was invited to become a phonics lead for Solihull Local Authority. And of course, at the time, phonics was um, sort of a hot topic again, you know, as, as the as synthetic phonics was recommended by Sir Jim Rose as the as the way to support children with their early reading. And it just grabbed me. I was, I was really fascinated by the the logical building blocks of sounds, making words for meaning. And then when I moved to London, I worked in an earlier setting in North London and that phonics work carried with me. And I did some work on YouTube and made some apps that were all around learning to read. And then I moved into Key Stage 2 and Key Stage 3 at Weatherby Prep, where I taught English and then became the head of English and really enjoy teaching subject English to you know up to age 13 now. So I've gone the whole journey really from early reading to more scholarly reading, shall we say. That's great. Thank you. It's really useful to have that full perspective from the early years up to um, the prep school level. And we're going to be focusing on uh, the topic of reading and particularly reading for pleasure today. And I know it's a topic that you're particularly passionate about. Could you tell us a bit about why it's so important and what the benefits are for children? Absolutely. Well, I mean, I've been doing a lot of research into this. I, I did my MA a few years ago into this and, and read a lot of, of the research that's out there. And we need to read to succeed. And the, the, the evidence is out there that reading has such a huge impact on your success as an adult. And, um, your adult life outcomes are greater. And it's, um, and it's a strong predictor of educative success. On a more um, romantic level, I suppose you could say, you know, it's also developing the person that is reading and not just the words on the page, but it's also developing sort of the universality of human experience, grief and loss, as well as love and regret and, and all of those parts of what make us human. So that there are many facets to learning to read, not only to be entertained and to be engaged, but also to learn things and to learn things about the human condition as well. And given its importance, particularly in terms of academic achievement, what can schools be doing to build and sustain that culture of reading for pleasure? There's a few things that schools can do to encourage reading for pleasure. I'm in, a, in an all-boys setting here, and, and so it differs depending on the, the setting that we're in. But reading can often be feminised at an early age. And as children are learning to read, often it's in a setting that may be predominantly with female teachers, or they may be the only reader in the house might be the female member of the household who is doing the reading. And so it's highly feminized at an early age. And as children, and in, and in my case, for my setting, boys, as they get older, they can often reject that feminization of reading as they're developing their own masculine identity. And I think schools need to, need to subvert this a little bit by dare I say, even sort of masculinizing the, the hobby or the, or the enthusiasm for reading. And that means by approaching a diverse range of texts from a, a mixture of genres, from a variety of authors, not just the dead white English males, but bringing in voices from the margins, from unheard authors, unheard voices, and really approaching 
reading as a as an experience as something that is you're not only reading the word but you're reading the world you know you're understanding something about what it means to exist and i think a good english teacher can promote that in children to help them realize that actually it's not just about getting to the end of the next chapter or it's not about just having that sense of completion at the end of a series of books but there's so much more you can gain from reading itself so yeah variety of books is really important and of course, that's at odds with often what the curriculum is asking us to do. You know, we have prescribed texts and there are certain texts that we're told we've got to read to be a good reader. Or often it may be parents saying to their children, this is what I read when I was at school. I love this. Why don't you like it? You know, and sometimes that can be problematic if we don't tap into children's enthusiasms and what their interests are and books that tap into their lives, their histories and their subjectivities, particularly that can have a huge impact on reading enthusiasm, reading motivation. You mentioned, Chris, the sort of pressure of the curriculum. And I think all teachers would agree with the theory of the importance of reading. But in practice, there's exams, there's the full curriculum, there's busy timetables running from one lesson to the next. So what sort of advice would you give to schools in terms of carving out time and space for children to be able to sit down with a, with a good book and really be able to get absorbed by it? So children need opportunities to read. So it's got to have some curriculum weight to it. And whether that means timetable time, whether it means using the school libraries. I know libraries are becoming more of a rarity in schools nowadays. And it's and it used to be the central point of a school. You know, that would be the hub that everything revolves around. And I think making reading heliocentric again is going to be the, the key to success in all other subjects. You know, it affects everything in all other subjects. And that may mean having to set aside curriculum time for independent reading, just private, quiet reading, time in the timetable for prosody, you know, reading aloud, learning how to orate, learning how to entertain and engage with the tone of voice and the modulation, the rise and fall in your voice and, and capturing your audience with the way you read. Having time in the timetable for that is really valuable. But of course, in, in other subjects that across the curriculum, you can give the children opportunities to read, whether it's you know from the textbook or whether it's a story that has started off as a link in with science or a link in with history. But also they, they need to see more male role models, male reading role models. And again, it's that down to that feminization of English. The children in some settings don't often see a lot of male reading role models. So again, it continues this legacy of, of reading being a, a highly feminized activity and and often for boys they just don't see the value in it because of that interestingly there isn't there isn't a lot of evidence out there that suggests the gender of the teacher has a difference they just need to be seeing males reading and seeing males have an have an enthusiasm for reading that can help a lot of boys with their reading enthusiasm Thank you. And I, I guess that applies at home as well, doesn't it? It's never too early to start sharing books with children. And parents certainly have a role in that. Do you have any advice in terms of how parents can go about best supporting their child with reading for pleasure? Sure. So the first thing is that you've got to have books at home, accessible on the shelves, not to dusty tomes on, on the highest shelf that you can't reach or that are inaccessible. That says books aren't for you yet. Or that says you know, books are out of reach. They need to be tangible things that we can actually flick through and and hold and and decide if we don't like it by actually having a read of it first <laughs> you know rather than perhaps looking at something just from the blurb or the cover and thinking we don't like it but actually can we interrogate the book a little bit more before deciding and being discerning what books we like what books we don't like i think giving the children that time to find their genre find the series of books that they enjoy visits to bookshops talk to the the shop assistants they will be book lovers Take your child in with their favorite book and say to the assistant, say, you know, this is what they like. What do you recommend that's similar to this? And they will have 
a wealth of knowledge about what books to suggest to you. And it's okay to pause at a book or to decide that it's not for you or to, you know, that that's not, that's not failure if they realize after the first few chapters that it's just not of interest to them. The size of book can also make a difference. Sometimes children get a, a sense of completion. If it's a shorter book, they get that sense of pride knowing that they've finished a book that wasn't 400 pages long, but also trying to avoid the, the tropes of, of feeding the children books that we think that they need to read. Because of course, our subjectivities are different. You know, I've had children before that, you know, at age eight or nine being given the autobiography of Winston Churchill by David Cameron, which I'm, I'm sure is a, a gripping read, a real page turner. However, um, you know, at age eight or nine, the children should be reading stories that are much more in line with their enthusiasms at that age, I would say. And that can help sustain reader interest rather than diffuse it and, and put them off in the future. I'm not saying that book would put them off, of course. Um, but uh, but sometimes if, if the text is too advanced or too academic or too scholarly for a child at a certain age, it can make them feel like reading is a brick wall that they can't get over. That's really useful and interesting. Thank you. Beautiful thought in terms of the actual books that we're putting in front of children. In terms of the really the youngest children, there's a, a lot of wonderful books out there for them to access. And you alluded earlier to your work that you've done on YouTube. And I'm aware some of our listeners may have come across you with Geraldine the Giraffe. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about the origins of Geraldine and how she supports reading. So when I started developing YouTube videos back in 2006, before YouTube was even a thing, I noticed there was some traction on the view viewership. And slowly but surely, I would get requests from viewers on YouTube asking me to make more. So we used a puppet called Geraldine and added some feathers just so she was copyright free. You've got to have seven points of difference on a puppet to make it copyright free. We then produced video after video focusing on different phonemes, different letter clusters, uh, different aspects of literacy. And before we knew it, you know, we had 10,000 subscribers, 20,000 subscribers. And then I started to develop apps that help to support children with their reading, that just the basic building blocks of reading words, which is the synthesis of sounds to read words. And, and that's, in a nutshell, what synthetic phonics is. It's that manipulation of, of a set of discrete sounds to form language. And it's been really successful. I know a lot of schools use Geraldine the Giraffe's resources to help their children with reading. And again, it's just making something what could be quite dry, hopefully quite fun in you know, attaching it to a puppet and and making it that sort of short burst of phonics at the start of the day. Little and often is the key with all reading, especially if, if we have reluctant readers, just little and often. That regularity of reading will get your child there in the end. You know, they, they will get there. They might need a little bit more, more runway before they can take off. But, you know, like with everything, just little and often would be the best approach for, especially for younger, early readers. And I suppose phonics really provides that foundation for a love of reading, doesn't it? If you can read fluently and successfully, you're going to enjoy and, and be able to delve into different texts with much more ease than if you're sort of stumbling over words and, and struggling with it. That's right. And that can that can sometimes hold children back as well from enjoying a good book later on in their years is if they haven't got that solid foundation of phonics teaching earlier in their education. So you're right, it's, it's absolutely hand in hand phonics and their later success in reading. Really important. And there is evidence to suggest that children enjoy reading less as they get older. Do you have any thoughts on how we can overcome this issue? I think it's very individual. Some children will read and read and read and they will love it and then get to age 13 and then just stop. And I have lots of parents that will say to me, why doesn't my son read anymore? He used to love it. And they will come back to it. They will come back to it at a certain point when they rediscover the power and joy of reading. For some, 
they have no interest in their younger years. And then it's suddenly when they're an adult, they bloom again and they find out what it was about reading that they missed the first time round. So it's, it's very individual. Now, for me personally, I didn't read a lot as a teenager and it was only as an adult that I rediscovered reading. And I think it's more the sort of Piagian theory of ages and stages. We're all ready when we're ready. We can't all just turn 13 and suddenly want to open up Treasure Island or, you know, Hunger Games. It's going to take different times for different students at different points. And I think that's okay. And of course, with the, with the added complexity of digitized books and technology, I think rather than resisting that, we have to lean into that. And of course, you know, I would promote, you know, reading on Kindle, reading on e-reader of some sort, any form of text, any form of reading, that engagement with print is what's going to make the big difference. We've touched on it a few times during our discussion, Chris, in terms of boys enjoying reading potentially less than girls. And you've mentioned sort of a few ideas about how to to overcome that. I'm just wondering, obviously, you're, you're in a boys school. I'm interested to get your perspective on, is this actually true? Do you see it, you know, unanimously across your boys? What sort of strategies do you put in place in your classroom to address it? Sure. So thinking of the some of the research behind it, boys can appear to respect reading and show readerly behaviour but not always be willing to express a great affinity with it itself. And the disconnection between boys and English isn't new. Issues of gender and masculinity have been problematic in a subject that's often seen as in the feminine zone. And interestingly, in a co-educational setting, boys consider English, boys can consider English to be uh, the domain of the girls. But in a single sex setting, reading tends to be the domain of the scholarly. So once you lose, once you lose the girls from, from the, the co-ed setting and it's an all-boys setting, Suddenly boys can have a higher self-concept of their own reading abilities because there's no, almost no one to compete with <laughs> other than themselves. And so they can become those great readers. And there's just an interesting bit of research about 10, 15 years ago that, that found that, that in a single sex setting without the girls there, actually reading was more successful in a class of boys. In our setting, what we've tried to do is make sure that we have different reading role models around the school. So sometimes we'll get the, the sports teachers. And in our setting, all of our sports teachers here are male. We ask them to come and read with the boys at World, in World Book Week, World Book Day. We get them more heavily involved in showing how to read aloud, reading them stories at lunch or on break. We try to make sure that our texts are wide and varied. We also have parents coming in to read with us. We've had form fathers in, in the past where the boy's dad specifically will come in to read with their children, a child from their own, a book from their own childhood. They'll come and read that to them in early morning form. And it's lovely just to see that enthusiasm for reading and how it can be sustained even as an adult and that there are still books that we read now that their children will read now those books that they don't realise yet that in 30, 40 years' time will be that memorable book from their childhood. I'm sure there's one that you've got, Emma. Oh, there's, I'm sort of reliving it now, to be honest. I've got a two-year-old at home, so we're going through all the classics, Harry McClary and all that sort of thing. <laughs> it's, it's really lovely to sort of revisit and be able to have those memories from your past. And there is nothing quite like sitting down with a good book, I think, is there. I'm interested that you mentioned your enthusiasm for things like Kindles, online reading, etc. I can imagine some parents might feel sort of cautious or concerned about the amount of screen time and limiting that. What should they be doing? Should they be sort of 
maybe not forcing, perhaps is the wrong word, but should they really be encouraging children to sit down with an actual book at points as well? Or do you think actually it doesn't matter what the medium is as long as they're getting that opportunity to read them? That's the important thing. For reluctant readers, I would say your latter point is is true. You know, it doesn't matter how they're accessing the reading material as long as it's something that they're engaging with and that they enjoy and that they want to read more of. I think that's the, the main point. But you're quite right. Just having that flexibility of physical books, some online books. I mean, personally, I can't beat the feel of a, of a physical copy of the text and the smell of the pages. And just knowing that you, know, you, you are literally turning the page, that you've got the power there to find out what happens next. You know, I, I love that about the, the physical edition of books. And I think we can't lose that. But the trend is in education now to, to lean in more to the technology rather than resist it because it's, it's their world. And, you know, we're in danger of, um, of making ourselves obsolete if we don't roll with that. So we've got to lean into that where possible. Staying on the theme then of technology, are there any sort of online resources, tools that parents, teachers, children can access when it comes to reading? So websites and resources I've used in the past, Pearson do a great collection called Bug Club, which I've used before in an earlier setting. And what's great about that is that a lot of the texts are phonic decoders, but they're themed around things the children will really like. So there'll be Marvel books, Angelina Ballerina books that, so they've obviously been licensed to develop books based on these original characters that children will know and love. So of course, you've got the children motivated straight away then as well. There's a new software known as Little Wandle, which is very popular in earlier settings. And it's the recommended approach to learning to read now. And if you can find any Little Wandle resources, I, I highly recommend them. I'm a governor of a local primary school and they use those resources there. And they've noticed the shift in reading, a reading ability has been fantastic. So they highly recommend that. I would recommend apps, but I think the app model is perhaps, dare I say, it's slightly dated now. I think it's probably looking more at the subscription model for websites where they've got a wealth of books. And I know during the pandemic, websites would have seen a huge surge of interest for online reading materials and resources. But the ones that I've just mentioned, that those have been the ones that I've gone to in the past. And I'm sure there are many, many more out there. But as long as the child is engaging in text, in print, that's the main point. Lovely. Thank you. And my final question then is one that you've just asked me, actually, is um, about your favourite books and uh, ones from your past that you particularly remember well that you might recommend to our listeners. So in terms of favourite texts, I have to say Wind in the Willows has got a special place in my heart. My mum used to play it to me on cassette tape before going to sleep at night. And of course, it's too long to listen to in one sitting. So I'd always end up listening to the same the same 20 minutes before he'd fallen off to sleep, where Mole and Ratty are in the water, you know, simply messing around in boats. But even now, you know, 20 something years later, 30 something years later, I, I still remember that vividly and fondly. And I think that's that joy of literature has passed on to me from my parents. You know, it's that idea of cultural capital, you know, how, how we're raised and that those funds of knowledge that are embedded us in us from a young age through, you know, the place we're born, the family we grew up with, you know, the school we go to. But Wind of the Willows has got a place in my heart, as well as classics like Elmer, Elmer the Elephant. Way ahead of its time was Elmer the Elephant. And other books like The Tiger Who Came to Tea. And I always quite sad when, I, when in the last page of The Tiger Who Came to Tea, when the, the author, say, Judith Persher says, the young girl, she hopes that the tiger would come back or the, or the tiger intimated that it would come back, but it never did. You know, and it's quite heartbreaking, you know, that first sense of, of tragedy in a story where it's, you know, it's not quite the happiest of endings. I think sometimes those are the books you, you fondly remember where, I don't know if you remember Not Now Bernard, but Bernard gets gobbled up on the last page and, and that's it. That's the end. 
So I think sometimes those books where it's a little bit more honest about life, like I think The Wind in the Willows was a, was about turning the woodland, the country's woodland into, you know, houses and, and making towns out of, out of conservation areas and about the threat that would pose to animals. Yeah. And I think that's when you get the most power from books is where you see those wider conceits and what the author was trying to say. That, that's where, that's where reading for me becomes more 3D. And that's where you get more value from it, I think, as a reader. You've definitely mentioned some classics there, brought back some good memories. In terms of your older children, any uh, books or authors that you would recommend for anyone that's, you know, more at the sort of prep school level? So prep school, I think it's good to have a breadth of reading. So not just fiction, not just nonfiction, maybe some poetry, maybe some play scripts and vary your authors. Find all the favourite books you've ever thought of. And if they're dead white English males... (laughs) That's, that's probably highly likely because that's where we all go to first. You know, we go to our Orwells and, and our Steinbecks. But also you've got our contemporary authors as well. You know, on Jolly Ralph, who wrote The Boy at the Back of the Class, a very contemporary writer for young children. We've also got Shana Jackson, Night Bus Mystery, very popular with our boys. And, um, you know, we've got writers from other cultures, writers who are speaking for the unheard. You know, and I think that's a real movement at the moment in reading is listening to those voices that we don't always hear in literature and following the lives of characters that we don't often see in literature. That's really valuable. And again, goes back to that point of not just reading the word, but reading the world. You know, it speaks to our universality of human experience. So I think the the canon has a place in our reading enthusiasm. And of course, these classic books that we've read in our past are still got a place in in reading diets but certainly my recommendation would be to have that breadth of reading to develop ourselves as, as individuals thank you so much chris it's been really interesting talking to you hearing about your passion for reading and also your insights in terms of uh, how we can get children engaged in reading for pleasure you've definitely inspired me i'm going to go and have a, a good sit down and have a, a read of a good book now so thank you very much for your time and uh, we hope to speak to you again soon <laughs> Thank you so much. Lovely to speak to you.